listening to this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. Today, I have a special treat for you. During the pandemic, ASF started to hear from early career researchers who were really struggling. Now, the intro music may not be totally obvious, but it's The Scientist by Coldplay. And you know I've been dying to use this song for a while, and guess what? I might just use it again. Remember, these are the next generation of scientists that have already or will be coming on to the next big thing. They are the ones that are really helping yourselves or your kids now. And while they're being trained themselves, they're also bringing in new and fresh ideas, approaches, and techniques. The future of autism researchers depends on these early career researchers, or they're also called early stage researchers or early stage investigators. They're really right out of getting a PhD in a postdoctoral fellowship or in the first, say, seven years after their postdoc has ended, or their last training, like a medical residency. They hustle every day for families, and given on the whole their age, not everyone is like me and has had kids later in their life, they also have added burdens of having young kids at home. And they're the future of scientific research discoveries in autism, and they're in trouble. So ASF work with them to conduct a survey to really quantify how and why they were struggling. The results were recently published in the journal Autism Research as a Commentary, and I've attached it to the podcast summary on asfpodcast.org. This week, the authors of that article and I discussed the importance of these findings to you guys, the autism community, and how these challenges can be addressed so that these junior-level researchers continue to help families and also have the support they need to earn a decent living doing so. But for some background... Most of the respondents in the survey were female, even though the survey was sent to a mix and males of females, and also needs at home and caregiving affected productivity about as much as the universities themselves shutting down. Also, shockingly, levels of mental health stress, including burnout, were through the roof. Before the pandemic, only 1% reported feeling completely burned out. But during the pandemic, 17% said they were completely burned out and really unsure if they could continue. So what can families do? Support places that support early career researchers and junior level clinicians. Everything they are doing is important, not just today, but in 20 to 30 years down the road. Now, without further ado, here's the discussion. Thank you guys for all joining us for this or joining me for this podcast. It was really a pleasure to work with all of you on this important project. Why don't you all introduce yourselves quickly, and we'll start with Claire, then Vanessa, then Kimberly, counterclockwise. Hi, I'm Claire Harrop. I'm an assistant professor at UNC Chapel Hill. I'm um, in my third year of an institutional K award. Um, My position is in the School of Medicine. My research has predominantly focused on understanding the interplay between biological sex and gender in young autistic um, children, and also some work examining co-occurring anxiety and ADHD in autism. I'm also the mom of two young kids. 
<laughs> so if you Hi, hear everyone. someone in the background, <laughs> next to next is Vanessa. Hi, my name is Vanessa Ball. I'm an associate professor in the Carmazin Lillard Chair in Adult Autism at Rutgers University. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist by training and my research focuses on autism in adulthood. And, and I also have two young children, if that. Maybe we'll hear them too. <laughs> <laughs> it's not all bad. Um, I'm Kim Carpenter. I am an assistant professor at the Duke Center for Autism and Brain Development. Uh, my research mostly specializes on uh, in understanding uh, how psychiatric comorbidities impact heterogeneity in young children with autism. Um, and I have one young child and a puppy that is very loud at home. So, <laughs> Even better. So thank you for telling me about your individual research programs. Um, the project that we want to talk about today has to do more with early career investigators as a group. Um, can each of you describe, and we'll go the other way, we'll start with Kim, sorry. Um, what's been the biggest challenge for you to do your research during the pandemic? Um, I was very lucky or am very lucky that we have an unbelievable amount of data that's already been collected. Um, so collecting data was actually not the biggest challenge. My biggest challenge has really honestly just been juggling, caring for my child, caring for my elderly father who lives with us, who helps to care for my child, but still there's some added um, burden there and just juggling it all um, at the same time. So despite having all the data, I don't have all the time to work with all the data. So that's been the hardest part for me. Vanessa, yeah, what I about you? I think for me, um, you know, two things. One is that I, I'm in the final year of my K award and it's been kind of slow getting things started up um, since my move here to Rutgers. And we were just finally ready to actually collect data. <laughs> so, you know, that's been an obvious disruption and, and a, a bit of pressure because it's near the end of the grant. Um, but I, I think the most prominent thing in is really just what um, Kim just said, which is trying to balance things and really feeling like in every domain that I'm working, I'm coming up short. So if I'm, you know, trying to spend quality time with my kids, it's often in the middle of the workday and I'm missing meetings or I'm not getting um, other things done. And if I'm, um, you know, scrambling to meet a deadline, then my children are, are feeling like I'm you know, squirreled away in my room, having fun without them. So, um, so that's been, I think, the biggest struggle. Yeah, I think mine are, are really similar. I'm too in the final year of a K award. My, we were just getting started to launch a project with three to eight year olds, really young kids um, using EEG. And that was my training aim of my K. And it's pretty hard to do EEG right now. Um, especially being someone who's starting out, who I don't have a huge team. I don't have a massive amount of resources to, you know, cover some of the PPE or some of the kind of savvy things people have been doing to do this safely. And then echoing, you know, balancing being a parent and an early career academic during this time, we have no family within an eight hour flight. Um, it's been exceptionally challenging to be a, a dual career couple and juggling that that demand of really quite young kids. My kids are, are now two and four, but they were one and three when this when this started. And it's just, you know, working during nap time, 
feeling like I'm giving my kids too much TV so I can get some work done and then just working really late every night. So I think, you know, echoing what Vanessa and Kim have said, but also just that mental health challenge that I just don't feel like I will ever be rested again after this. Yeah, and I can also say, although my kids are a little older, that I just feel like I'm failing at everything. So I'm not doing my job. I'm not being a good parent. Um, but one of the reasons um, we, we collectively did this study to focus on early career researchers was for the reasons you mentioned, right? So um, you're in a vulnerable position in your careers. You're just starting out. You're either... Um, you guys, but some some other people are anywhere between the end of your postdoc to seven years in your first kind of um, faculty position um, where you're expected to hustle for grants, you're expected to find your own salaries, especially. And because you're, you know, in that age bracket, you also have very young children, which under the most normal of circumstances is a very trying period. So why was documenting some of these struggles so important? Why is that so important? Well, I think um, I was recently introduced at a talk as someone who's an advocate for women and early career researchers. And that is something that's kind of stuck with me. I, I, I find that I often have postdocs or students come and talk to me about juggling motherhood and academia. So I think we were all in this position where we were living it, but also we're, we are a couple of years in. And I cannot imagine being on the job market right now, either looking for a postdoc or a faculty position. And I think it was really important. It came at an opportune time for us to kind of document the specific impact on our field. Um, at a personal level, it was quite cathartic to write this and I joke it's one of the most productive times during this past year for me. Um, but I think some of the feedback that we've had so far has just been overwhelmingly positive from leadership at our institutions, um, from people outside. And I, and I think if we can lead to just a little bit of change, that would be really positive. But for, even if it, it, I don't think it will impact us three, we, I think we're all in pretty, we're relatively okay, but if it can impact the people that are just starting out, that would be fantastic for us. It's quite loud here, sorry. Um, oh no, we can't hear anything. So, um, you know, I, as a psychologist, I think that it, it was, it's been very striking to me in talking with many of my colleagues who are in similar career stages, um, about how exhausted they are, kind of what Claire had said, just feeling like there's no ever catching up. And, and there's some, to some extent, sometimes I think that's part of academia, um, but particularly now where you're trying to um, support your kids in school or you're you know, now the childcare provider throughout the entire day and, and then trying to make up for that every day um, in the evenings and, um, and the toll that that takes, just, just sheer exhaustion, but I think compounded by the fact that we are in the middle of a global pandemic 
and a racial pandemic and all of the things that are weighing on us constantly. And everyone is experiencing that, but, you know, throw in, you're already tired and you're already scrambling to do all of these things and the mental space it takes to navigate all of these decisions. You know, we talk a lot about the objective outcome. So, you know, disruptions to productivity and, um, but thinking about the, additional sort of psychological space it takes to just make decisions right now. Is it safe to send my child, you know, to school? Is it safe for grandparents to visit? Is it, is it safe to leave my house, <laughs> you know, on, on any given day? And, and if we decide that, you know, you're not affected uh, or that you're safe from COVID, you know, are there other factors that might make your family unsafe um, given all of the just awful things that are happening? And, and I think this has just been a really awful time for a lot of people to um, navigate. And and I so I, I really felt like demonstrating the um, the distress and, and the burnout was an important piece of this to highlight that even if some people are doing okay, product, you know, productivity wise, or departments are willing to kind of make concessions for expectations that um, a lot of people aren't okay. And, and there's a real risk for long-term effects of this. Um, yeah, because I don't know if I have that much to add. I just have to say, so for me, I've spent the last couple of years really um, in my non-research hat, focusing on um, lifting up early career researchers through a number of different initiatives at Duke and then um, through uh, the NSAR Early Career Committee. And I just, through that, I've built a pretty large network of early career um, peers. And I can just say that, you know, we're all, I think it, we, this has already been said, but we are all struggling. Like there's not, I haven't met a single early career person who is not struggling in some way during this time. Um, and you do hear these stories of the person who um, has written 12 papers because they're at home all day and that's what they can do. And I think sometimes those stories are the ones that get amplified and the, and the ones of complete and utter burnout. And my psychology, I'm a neuroscientist by training, but most of my colleagues are psychologists. And you know, I, I have one colleague who was fielding um, suicide calls during one of our meetings, like because that has gone, you know, through the roof, and just her clinical burden has completely taken over her um, research, even though she's primarily a researcher under normal circumstances. And it's just the ways that that early career researchers have been pulled. Oh, and her children were in the background at the same time, right? Like it's just the way the, the many different directions everybody has been pulled um, really spoke. To me and I thought that we needed to get more of those kind of the harder stories out rather than the success stories of the people who are writing 5,000 grants and 5,000 papers because they're at home all day with no children. So. And the listeners of this podcast are mostly families so I'm going to comment about why I think this issue is important for families and then you guys can each comment on that. Um, so the Autism Science Foundation does primarily support, um, we have a number of different mechanisms, but we primarily support early career researchers because, you know, the senior investigator, it's, it's a cycle. So the senior investigators build careers, they retire, and it's that next generation of men, women, young moms, young dads, maybe not always young in age, but you know, early on who are just starting, who are not just taking over what the senior investigators have been doing, but building their own studies because they have different questions. So as some studies or some research questions have get, got, gotten answered, 
other questions emerge. Also, they train, you guys train as junior investigators, postdocs and pre-docs and undergraduates who are then going to be the next generation. And so it's very important for us to make sure that that next generation is supported so that we don't have just a drop off in scientific research and discovery in 10 years because there isn't enough trained people out there. And also for anyone who has thought about um, or who has experienced wait lists in diagnosis, in interventions, in access to care, in um, you know, finding a psychologist or a, a medical professional, that backlog is because there aren't enough trained professionals in the field who are able to do, to help families. So we feel, and I feel that the early career investigators need to be nurtured, but I also feel like if we don't do this, if, if, if we don't pay better attention to this generation, um, then things in 10, five, even three, five, 10 years are going to be a really critical point because there really aren't going to be enough people in the field to help families with autism. So is there anything you want to comment on that? I think I would just add, you know, in, in what you were saying is that many um, people who do autism research, spend a lot of time in their training. And so it's, it's somewhat different than other fields where I think it, it takes a, a lot of training to build the expertise needed to do this research. Um, and, and not to say that other fields don't have specialties, but, but, you know, many of us spend a decade or more, even just in the training sort of phases to learn all of the different aspects that are important to this research. And so it's, it's not the case that, um, you know, if you lose a few people there, there is easily replaced. Right. And we're already in a shortage, as Alicia said, um, in, in terms of providers and as well as researchers. And so I think that's that's the big impact is, is that it takes a good amount of time to, to prepare people to do um, that work. So my next question is what can be done? So what we'll start with advocacy and funding organizations. So in your experience, in your opinion, what is it that advocacy organizations and funding organizations, including the NIH, need to be doing? What, how do they need to be attending to, to the findings of this paper and the experiences of early career researchers? I can, I can start. Okay. I think with regards to big federal funding agencies, um, and we are seeing the shift, I think, NIH, um, you know, having if, if you've got a grant and one of them's an e, you're taking them to council, which is where we, you know, we advocate for grants to be funded. You've got one by an established investigator who's got four R01s and there, and you've got one that's maybe one or two percentiles higher that's an ESI and this is their first grant. I hope that we can start reaching for those ESIs, those early stage investigators, because this could this particularly during this this time, these grants are career making. But in this time, they could be really career making or not getting them could be career breaking. And I think that you, that is really hard, you know. Um, um, so I, I hope that that is something that we can do at the federal level. 
we know that there's been extensions um, for things like childbirth um, and not making people have to document in really, you know, in our 10 year packages, we already will be doing things like documenting the impact of COVID. So if there's a way to do that at the federal level with it, so with your ESI status for NIH and you, you can extend this due to childbirth and it literally is clicking a button, no questions asked now. It doesn't need to be documented in any way. And I, and I hope that there, there'll be a similar impact with COVID that we can just assume that everyone just gets that year extension because I think for the vast majority of people, it hasn't been smooth sailing. Yes, there's people that have churned out papers and they've submitted grants and they're doing really well. And I've, you know, I, I, me, if we were chatting, you know, I, I think I've got surface level productivity, but at some point that, that grant, that, that backlog of data that stops. And what about my trainees? They're, there's, I'm three years in, I don't have data for them to work on. And so just having that recognition that this is going to impact for a number of years, I think. Um, this isn't just, let's just make this concession till 2022 or something. This needs to be quite a long consideration. Yeah, I think, I mean, Claire, I think your point that this is even the tenure extensions, right? People are like, oh, ask for a one-year tenure extension. Um, first off, that only helps people on the tenure track. Second off, um, you're right, it's not just one year. Like there are a lot, there's gonna be downstream effects that people who are not in big research groups are gonna continue to be fighting through because research literally stopped, right? Like you hear stories of entire mouse colonies having to be called because there was nobody to care for them, right? Like that's not trivial. Um, or, and, you know, like just people not being able to recruit. And, you know, we are back to seeing kids at Duke, but it's hard to get people in because they don't wanna catch COVID. Um, so even though we are recruiting kids and we have all the safety protocols in place, our recruitment is still slower than it was before the pandemic, right? So even though we've kind of started to see the end of, you know, the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel for that piece, it's not, it's not like it all comes back immediately, right? And so there's going to be a lot of downstream effects. There's going to be a lot of picking up the pieces and, you know, you can't do everything all the time. And I think most of us have been trying to for the past year. And that's why, as you can see in our paper, the burnout levels, the anxiety levels, the depression levels are through the roof right now, because you can't do everything all the time. And we've been asked to do that for an entire year and it's just not sustainable. So again, the downstream effects, right? Like there's going to be a rebound period where people are just not going to be able to function potentially for a little while, right? <laughs> like we need our vacations. We need all of those things to kind of rebound. Um, yeah. So just appreciating that. I think that the, you know, thinking about advocacy and funding organizations, especially large ones, I, I wonder if the pandemic can really be a turning point. And this is something that we said in the paper and, and others have said, where um, we really think about some radical change and moving forward and how we apply for and, and how funding is awarded. Um, you know, the, take the K mechanism, for example, it is a wonderful um, way to get support for early career researchers if you can get one. They're quite competitive and um, and it's, it's a, honestly, I think it's a quite a privileged group that can actually 
gather together the mentor team needed and the time and the resources to put in the application. And, and that's not limited to case. That's all NIH grants. You know, you spend weeks or months and, you know, collectively in some ways years to get the preliminary data, et cetera, to put in these grants. And, you know, half of them don't even get brought to the table to be discussed. Um, and, and so, you know, to keep doing that and, and for people who are in soft money positions, you need more than one R1 often to really fund yourself and your team, et cetera. But, but to really think about, um, you know, certainly it's needed during COVID, but maybe long-term, are there different ways that we could streamline this process for people um, and to make the application process more accessible to people who don't have um, the ability to dedicate several weeks of full-time work to putting together an application or might not have access to those, um, you know, a really large team of mentors who have the resources that are needed to put into those kinds of grants. And, and just to think, you know, I, I, I understand the need to have a high bar for what gets funded because there's limited funding, but there's got to be other ways <laughs> to, to help um, elevate some of those, especially in the early career stages. And I think one of the things we suggested in the paper as well was this potentially a more flexible use of funding. Um, you know, I, I, I think I told you all about, I wanted to go to a training as part of my, my, my k-12 and i had a four-month-old at the time and i didn't and it was a two-week training i didn't want to fly to the west coast um so we had come up with this elaborate scheme that my mom was potentially going to come over from the uk and come with me and and we got this all kind of approved and then that the the training grant that covers this training wouldn't allow childcare to be covered or like anything to be covered and then we got it approved for my K to be used in that way, but then my institution wouldn't allow it to be used in that way. So there were just these barriers that were that didn't. I couldn't go to this training because I I didn't want to leave, understandably, a, a, a newborn for two weeks. So I think you know we know that ASF in your recent round of of grants, you you did have you know some subsidies for childcare or dependent care, and and I think things like that are going to be really important, but it's very hard to do it at, about, at the, the funding level and at the institutional level. Every institution is, is different. And, and this was a real battle. And in the end, I just said, like, I'll just stay on my, I'll just have, I'll just be on my maternity leave instead. So I think we're going to have to see some bigger change to support people during this. So thank you, Claire, because that's a nice segue to institutions, universities, and other organizations. What can they do? So you don't have to name names. I have heard horror stories, and I won't name names because I don't want to shame them and, and have them dig in their heels more about how startup money has been frozen, um, how positions that were offered as far as not, not just new hires, but promotions were literally the paperwork was put through and they just said, mm, we have a hiring freeze. Um, money that we have awarded has been frozen. So we will make an award for a COVID grant and the money gets frozen. What, what are some of the biggest obstacles? And um, you know, you've revealed who your universities are, but let's talk about theoretically, what can universities do and what should they be doing to ease? So what is it that institutions and universities could be doing or should be doing to support 
science right now? I think one of the, the best schemes that I'd seen was um, Yale had a scheme in the School of Medicine that allowed for some bridge funding and it was specific to early careers. So a lot of the bridge funding that I've seen at UNC in the School of Medicine is for people who have an R01 that's going through competitive renewal, but they perhaps didn't get funded. So it allows some bridge for that. But that, that implies you have an R01 already. Um, mm -hmm. So the Yale mechanism was really targeted at early career folks. It was for about 100,000. It was a pretty significant pot of money. Um, so that was that seemed to me a really good mechanism. Um, that's that's one of the best that I've I've seen. But I think this kind of funding that allows people who maybe they bought out their summer salary for two years with the goal that they were going to have grants in their third year, and that hasn't happened yet because we know that um, Kim and I just went through, through this. That you know, my I I had an R01 get reviewed, and they the number of applications that they had in this cycle was so much more that. <laughs> Kim and I had the same score, but two cycles apart and our percentiles are, are pretty different um, because there were so many more applications. So, so if there's a way for institutions to say, okay, well, you've got a score that looks like it, it might be funded, but not this round, but next round you're heading in the right direction. How can we support you? Um, but I'm aware that, that that is also a privileged position because you have the time to write R01s and the support to do that. And um, mm -hmm. I sometimes worry that what we're talking about is really aimed at people at those R1 institutions. And it's not, there is also folks that, that are, you know, juggling teaching demands and administrative demands. And I, 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 we recognize that in the paper that this is, that, that we maybe don't, we didn't capture the, that group of people as much. You know, I think um, one of the things that Kim said was mentioning uh, extra time on the clock for either for tenure or even for promotion. Um, and, and I think that that's nice. <laughs> um, and that's often how maternity leaves are, are handled. But there's research to show that that, that, doesn't, that actually hurts the individual, right? Because that's delaying that person's career. It's delaying, you know, the bump up to salary that could, you know, help to um, mitigate some of the costs of childcare, you know, the, all of those kinds of things. So I think hopefully institutions will think about ways that they can reevaluate the, the criteria for tenure and promotion at, at, in all different kinds of positions, rather than simply encouraging people to delay going up for, for consideration. I think one thing that my department has done and, and I think is really helpful and could be done universally is create mechanisms to um, like course releases, right? So that people have either, you know, a lower course load so they can focus more on their research if that's what they're doing, or if they have lots of courses to teach just to kind of balance out some of that workload. Um, and, and the key part to that was that the application for that course release was very brief. <laughs> um, and, you know, we were were given a, a short page limit and also encouraged like you don't have to use that limit but say what you need to say um, and it was really just to kind of lay out what you were going to do at that time and um, and to you know explain a little bit about your situation and and I found that quite helpful um, because it wasn't the barrier for many people of the application process. So you guys brought up something that I think is important is teaching and so 
um, as we all have kids and we want them to grow and learn and potentially go to college and get taught by the very best professors, you know, what would be a solution to keeping universities open, even in a virtual way and allowing universities to have qualified people, students and trained students, but still preserve the activities of researchers so they can continue to see families and see patients. Um, and when I say patients, I mean, sometimes these are actual patients with rare genetic disorders. I know sometimes people don't love the word patients, but see families, care for them, make sure they're getting the right services. So what would potentially be a solution? Would it be um, adjuncts or how? How I can speak from the um, perspective of, you know, again, big research institutions is just a more equal recognition of the value of teaching. So if I, um, you know, I, I have a large clinical team of doctoral students and master's students. Um, and if I were able to count that training and supervision and clinical time with them as a course, right? So, so that's one way to kind of balance. It doesn't necessarily address the um, the actual classroom kind of teaching, but I, I think it, it's hard that at many of the universities where lots of research and, and clinical activities are happening, that there is an emphasis on research and a less um, sort of, for lack of a better word, credit for teaching and or clinical services. Um, but I also think that funding mechanisms to um, support trainees, um, so maybe postdoctoral level trainees or even early career trainees in some of those spaces where there are these uh, more novel clinical services can really help. So to mitigate the um, supervision or direct contact time of the most senior person and you're, you, you're sort of addressing the needs of training and supervision at multiple different levels. Um, and sometimes those positions are hard to get funded if they're more oriented toward clinical or, or teaching. I'm in a I'm in an allied health department, and I think we have a real equal weight on clinical teaching and research as as those 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 prongs that you're evaluated on, and and so I think they really our department really emphasizes high quality teaching, and and so that is that has been great for me because I've been able to to do some teaching alongside my research, but. It, it does, especially shifting everything online in the fall. This was like my first call, my first full class and, you know, shifting everything online, inheriting a syllabus, all those things. It was a lot of work to do. Um, but I think recognizing um, the teaching side, I would have loved opportunities as a postdoc to teach, to get that experience. I, I don't think as postdocs, we're really... Uh, I think most of us did sort of T32 or very research oriented postdocs that we just, I just didn't get the teaching experience. And that was at the time, I didn't think it was that important because you know, I was building my research portfolio and my, you know, going towards independence. But I think recognizing that our positions, what they want us to have that, that equal service teaching and research um, and giving space for that for early careers. Um, I know that's something that I really missed as a postdoc and, and I feel like I was playing catch up when I became faculty. Um, 
And, and maybe I was ahead of some of my peers in my department in terms of research productivity, but I felt so nervous in the classroom because it just wasn't, it wasn't emphasized as much. And, and I think that, that for our trainees and our, our doctoral and postdoctoral trainees, giving them more space to do that well, I think will set them up. And, and also then it provides more opportunities where I was pretty much all I could go to was an R1 with my CV there was, I, I couldn't apply for positions at liberal arts colleges or less research intensive because I didn't have the course evaluations, the, the experience doing that uh, because my position didn't allow me. And that's fine. I, I'm really happy in the position I'm in. It fits what I want to do perfectly. But I think it opens up those options for trainees that, that, that weren't open to me. And I think that's going to be really important as we move forward, that people have the opportunities to go to different institutions that they they perhaps haven't been ex haven't had the experience with. Um, I can see Kim nodding because we had very similar postdoctoral experiences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I I never taught until this year ever. So, and I'm I'm teaching residents, right? And I'm it's a team based approach. It's not even a real course. Um, and like Claire, so I'm you know many years out of my degree, and I still can't go to a liberal arts college because I have none of that teaching experience because I was trained at an R1 and I did my postdoc at an R1 and I've maintained R1 type experience. So I completely agree that that's not even an option um, that I can give myself nor any of my trainees. So Vanessa May, um, I went to Rutgers graduate school where Vanessa is now and I put myself through graduate school through a teaching assistantship. I have to say, I agree with the idea of a balance. I had an amazing mentor who basically arranged it so that there would be a balance. But when I was a teaching assistant, I was expected to spend 80% of my time working, having office hours, going to class, holding recitations, grading papers, coming up with test questions, um, meeting with students. And so it possibly, you know, I, I was very lucky. My mentor, you know, basically said, okay, this is how we're, this is how it's going to work. But I know a lot of students who are in those teeth in the other way, the teaching students sometimes don't have time for their research and then also get put in a box, which, um, you know, I think I, I'm agreeing with making sure that there's the right balance. And maybe there are things and funding mechanisms that can be done to kind of ease that you know, restriction of say 80% on research or whatever on research because teaching and, you know, training is really important. Um, and it's important for, you know, not just getting through COVID, it's important for making sure you continue to learn and then the people that you teach learn. Was there any other point that we didn't bring up that you wanted to um, talk about, that you wanted to say, any comment you wanted to make, anything you wanted to add that we didn't get to in this, um, in this conversation? I think the only thing um, that I would say to like universities and leadership is that sometimes, um, cause we're trying to, in a lot of the initiatives that I'm um, helping lead, we're trying to be thoughtful of this. Um, a lot of times when universities come up with these, like we're, we're trying to help you. So we're going to give you like all these mental health zooms that you can go to, or we're going to give you these opportunities. Those opportunities feel like things that we then have to go to that are taking up more time that we don't have to give. And so to just be thoughtful about 
we know as early career folks, we understand that it's coming from a place of goodness, but that it's not, it, it oftentimes can actually place additional burden. Um, and to just be thoughtful about that balance, right? Like we know you want to help, but also asking us to do more things is not helpful. <laughs> and it's a hard balance, right? So like, just to be thoughtful. Yeah, I would piggyback, oh, sorry, Vanessa. <laughs> I would piggyback on that. And, and it kind of, I think this year has kind of normalized a lot. We sort of think of research being done in an ivory tower. And I think they see all this. They see, luckily this is a podcast, not, not a video. <laughs> you know, they see that we're, we're tired, we're exhausted. And I, I would add that, you know, I really, I think all three, all three of us here, and obviously ASF is doing this, we're all doing work around the impact of COVID on autistic individuals and their families. And, and I think this work together fits, fits well. I don't think it detracts at all from the work that folks are doing to document the impact of the pandemic on autistic individuals and their families. And it's just another side of what we're seeing. And I think this work is going on in parallel and hopefully can complement one another how we can do this work that is supporting families, but also supporting our researchers as well. And I think ASF have done some really nice work around, you know, work around COVID, but also for early careers, it's like hitting both points with one thing. I think, um, and maybe this might be, I maybe I'm overly concrete, but one thing that I think appeases or, or mitigates some of the anxiety or the um, pressure that early career researchers might feel would be just to have clearer benchmarks and guidelines. Um, so sometimes, in like academic medicine, if you're in a clinical department, you you know how many clinical hours you're supposed to hit, right? But but I think for research and, and for teaching, it's not always so clear what the expectation is. And, you know, not that anyone is going to go out and do the bare minimum, but it might make you feel better if you know that, you know, your committee is looking for X number of publications in a year or this many grants submitted or, um, or that, you know, it doesn't matter in a given year, as long as over this period of time, you have this, you know, whatever that benchmark is for the different departments you're in. And, um, you know, sometimes there's a lot of worry, especially as the transition to online teaching, like how much do the student ratings matter and you know many students aren't happy about um online teaching and so that you know then then professors are scrambling to try to to make students happy because they they don't want the you know the pandemic teaching to affect their sort of overall portfolio you know and, and just to be a little bit clearer on what are the guidelines um so we know what we're striving for and you know i think there's I, I just don't think that there's very many people out there in academia who are going to strive for the bare minimum, right? But it could take some of that pressure off um, and, and just to be clearer about, you know, kind of how we're allotting our time. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think people need to just kind of recognize here that, that researchers who are going in to learn how to help people with autism, whether they're children or adolescents or adults or elderly for the money. You need the money to help pay your bills and you wanna get compensated appropriately, but we're not talking about, you know, we're, we're talking about a special group of people who are pretty much dedicating their lives 
to helping families. But I, I hope no one thinks that this is that anyone is doing the bare minimum because you're 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 here because you want to help, not because you're in it for the money. So um, we're really just talking about trying to make sure that you're supported appropriately so that you can continue your career. And at the same time, not just help families down the road, but help families now. So, well, thank you guys. This has been really interesting. Thank you for all your work on the paper. I will post a copy of the paper to the podcast summary so people can have a chance to look at it. And we'll end a little early so you guys can get 10 minutes to go to the bathroom or have a coffee. <laughs> or pay attention to your kids. We, me and Kim have discussed like why do we, there are so many more meetings now. Thank you guys Thank so you. much. This will be on Monday's Monday's podcast. Bye. 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 Bye.